You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. I want to draw your attention to the front of the room and have you note the Wi-Fi connection. And the reason why is because once we get going here, you are going to have a way to be highly interactive in a, in a uh, newfangled way of doing the question and answer. So, for those of you that have a device, and you might want to find it, you might want to get logged into the Wi-Fi. It's the meeting room, um, Wi-Fi point and a password of early one, two, three. No capitals. Because we will make this go away shortly, so um, for those of you that would like to uh, share questions, with Heather and Dan once they get going. This is the way to do it, is, is through the platform you're going to see shortly. So connect to the Wi-Fi, and then you will see some instruction on the screen shortly that will tell you how to pose your question. Are we live, Francie? Okay. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, we have a live audience joining us from the internet, from the web. Hi, internet. Hi, Mo! <laughs> and we are super, super excited to bring you Dresbert, Dresbert, live at the Strategy for Peace Conference. Uh, for those of you who are not in the room, I am Jen Smizer, Vice President and Director of Policy Programming Strategy at the Stanley Foundation. And we are going to post a link. Um, for you to all learn what the Strategy for Peace Conference is and who the Stanley Foundation is. So on your own time or at your leisure, please check that out. Um, I am going to step out of the way in a moment and uh, let uh, Heather and Dan do their thing. Um, but before I do that, let me point you all to Pigeonhole, which is an uh, online platform for you to post questions. You can choose whether or not you're anonymous. Fun, fun, fun. Um, you can vote on other people's questions. You can add comments to the questions already asked and build them up or um, make them more complex. Uh, so this is a highly interactive way for you to not only hear um, what Dan and Heather have to say, um, but to draw more out of them. So I hope you all take advantage of this, whether you're in the room with us or not, and um, consider what you would like to pose to them. For those of you that do not know what Dresbert is, this is a, uh, uh, I've seen it referred to as a vlog or a video blog. Um, wait, no, I'm missing it. There's another term for it. Also podcast. There we go. Um, but these two do and have been doing for years. Um, these are two of my favorite policy analysts and um, both have the, the gift of gab. Um, so this is going to be highly entertaining. They're going to tap into the themes that we are addressing here at our conference but also what is actually happening in the world. And so um, hopefully this will be a good sort of thought-provoking introduction to the hard task that we have put in front of all of you in the coming uh, days. So please welcome Heather Hurlbert. Heather is the Director of New Models of Policy Change in New America. I love that title. And Dan is Professor of International Politics. That only gives me bad flashbacks, I'm sorry, Dan. Um, at the Fletcher School of Tufts. 
um, but uh, we have former students in the audience who we know um, can offer feedback to Dan on that role. Um, but that's their day job, but they do this on the side for fun, and they're sharing it with us tonight. So please um, thank them with me, along with me, and turning it over to you. Hello and welcome to Dresburg. We are going to start tonight with an uncharacteristically snark-free moment. I know people are now clicking away in droves. How dare they not be snarky? Uh, uh, first question, why not more smart? <laughs> <laughs> you hear that? But there's been a lot of movement on the internet in the last week or so around a little movement called hashtag MeToo about people suffering sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. There's also been a companion hashtag to that called I will, which is trying to get across the idea that we can move forward from the really problematic levels of sexual harassment and assault in our culture. And so we are here to say that we will take seriously the problem of sexual harassment and assault in the fields of national security and the academy and to affirm in front of you and the audience at home that yes, it is a real problem and we have our own Harvey Weinstein. In yet another spasm of agreement, I do not have much to add to what Heather said, but I would just say that yes, while this obviously started with Harvey Weinstein, uh, one of the interesting things in seeing this play out has been the notion that this is hardly unique to Hollywood. It's prevalent anywhere uh, where you have a radically unequal power uh, in a particular field. And unfortunately, I would argue, in both national security and in the academy, you are often in a situation where you have older, powerful uh, people who can put uh, younger people in a position of vulnerability. And so uh, while this is something that I think was sort of a, a known in some ways in, in some circles, I think one of the virtues of both of these hashtags, and I'm generally a, a, I'm generally a skeptic of, of hashtag activism or slacktivism, as it's called, but I think one of the useful things it occasionally does is actually bring awareness of just how prevalent these problems are. And so in that sense, it's been good to see and it's been good to remind me that, at least speaking for myself, that these are things that are not going to go away unless we're actually aware of them. Now, I know you're all thinking um, today is Wednesday, November, October. Wednesday, October 18th. A live audience is awesome for this kind of thing. <laughs> um, and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, what did the president tweet today that Heather and Dan are going to talk about? But we're going to shock you by starting not with the president's commentary on um, the um, casualties of America's wars, but with Rex Tillerson. <laughs> so um, Secretary Tillerson gave a speech on India today in which he said, and I more or less quote with a little allowance from the internet, that um, the core foundation of the US-India relationship ought to be the US and India working together so that each of them could defend their own sovereignty more effectively. Ladies and gentlemen, we give you the Trump Doctrine. So, as you all are familiar, Donald Trump ran on a uh, political platform of America First, uh, which has various odious qualities harkening back to the interwar period, but that didn't stop him from getting elected. 
But I think the, the interesting question for someone who studies international relations this year was, how do you make America first something that sells to other countries? One of the appeals of liberal internationalism is the notion that the United States is not just in the world you know, pursuing its own interests, it's trying to do well as, as in addition to doing good. The one argument that you can make in terms of America first is in terms of its candor is, they're just interested in doing good, you know, doing good for themselves. They don't care about anyone else. Um, and this is not a terribly appealing message to the rest of the world. And we've seen this in an array of speeches that, that Trump has given, you know, in terms of the NATO anniversary and then Warsaw and so on and so forth. And the question was, how is he going to make this a doctrine that could appeal beyond the United States? America first might sell well with certain populace in the United States. How can other countries feel like they can profit? And I think, as Heather said, that we're beginning to see the outlines of that. One way you can go, which you saw in Warsaw, was for Donald Trump to sort of go full Huntington and say, it's not America first, it's Western civilization first, which might appeal to certain parts of Europe, but is also limiting somewhat in the appeal. I think you can argue what he's now done is said, America first to the rest of the world means sovereignty first, which is to say that if we believe that the liberal international order has somehow given a raw deal for us, Surely there must be other actors who resent the intrusions that the liberal international order has on their sovereignty. And therefore, if we can agree that we will be the masters of our own domain, then maybe that's a, a sort of you know consensus upon which we can build going forward. And of course, this is super relevant to the 80-odd people gathered in the room here who um, are talking for the next two days, uh, for those of you online who haven't yet done your homework and gone to check out what strategy Stanley Foundation Strategy for Peace Conferences, who are spending the next couple days focused on questions around political violence and mass atrocities, around the connection between social media and weapons of mass destruction. I wonder where they came up with that one. Thinking about how do we deal with climate, just climate transition. All of those questions that I would guess that all of us in the room and most of us following online at home are used to thinking about in the context that was American foreign policy for 40 or 50 years, where we all told each other that we were engaged in some greater project of the liberal international order. And if now we're trying to do all those same things, but we're only trying to do them either to benefit ourselves or to help others who we carefully vet and approve benefit themselves, how does that affect our ability to chase any of those goals? So one example of this, I think, that, that's worth bringing up, and there are a couple of examples that have been in the news recently, but I think the one that, that comes to mind for me is the plight of the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, um, which is to say there's been an obvious, you know, has the word genocide been used yet? Or, Depends by who. Yes, exactly. It's but, been used by some people in the room, actually. Right. Um, I have to say, what, what this is giving me is deja vu back to 1994 and the debates about Rwanda. And I will always remember, you know, the sort of, when it happened, I wasn't, you know, necessarily aware of it, but I remember Samantha Power wrote a relatively searing article about, you know, that, that eventually became a problem from hell, about basically why did the Clinton administration not do that much when it came to Rwanda, um, in which you had Clinton administration officials being relatively candid and saying, we knew something bad was happening, but we had you know, just dealt with Somalia. Somalia was clearly something that affected why we were not necessarily gonna take action in Rwanda, and that is why you know, uh, four million people uh, died in that country in 1994. Maybe it's my imagination, but the striking thing about what's happening in Myanmar 
is that I don't even think Trump administration officials are having a debate about what they should do, because I don't think it occurs to them that they should do anything. I think for them, this is not necessarily something that they considered their bailiwick. And indeed, this has been an articulation by, among others, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, um, who in a variety of speeches, most prominently in a, uh, an open house with State Department employees, talked about, you know, well, we have values and then we have interests. And the interests are going to be much more important than the values. And sometimes we're going to have to sacrifice the values which puts the Secretary of State in a relatively awkward position, as he was today, I believe, in terms of trying to address something like the Rohingya massacre, because it raises the question, you can't simultaneously say these things aren't important, and that sovereignty is important, and then try to fix it. Well, I was fascinated, again, the same Tillerson speech today, he said, and again, I apologize, I think I'm not quoting exactly, um, used the passive voice to say there will have to be accountability. Uh, with respect to, to Myanmar. And that is a great construct if the world is a corporation in which you have a clear management structure and people can hold other people accountable. It also, you know, it would have been great um, struck a great thought if the sort of Samantha Power vision had actually played out either in the previous administration or this one where you had an empowered Security Council or an empowered global community that said, hey, you are doing bad things and we have actual mechanisms to hold you accountable for that. But um, self-interest um, does not, you know, so self-interest does a lot for you, but it doesn't really give you a good accountability mechanism. So one of, to my mind, the great challenges that we're facing in this room, but also we more broadly, dear podcast listeners and viewers, is you know, and it's not as much as many of our viewers may love to pin all of this on President Trump. Um, the fact that, as, as Dan said, there is a broad and eager international, well, I won't say community, although it's interesting that that's kind of what's bred into me, group of countries that to whom this rhetoric is really music to their ears. So if we are now looking at a world where a really significant portion of global power accrues to countries who say, we really don't like the idea of being a world of laws. We like the idea of being a world of states rather than a world of laws. Um, and so much of the structure we depend on, the whole notion that there can be such a thing as global climate mitigation, where the whole world works together to protect the most vulnerable from the effects of climate change. Well, what happens if there's no longer an idea of global responsibility for the most vulnerable? No, this, and you raise a valid point, which is to say that I think one of the oddities of the 2016 campaign was that was that Trump's rhetoric seemed to be premised on the notion that the Obama administration was obsessed with human rights and and mass atrocities uber alles, and that was their their primary focus. Which was I'm sorry, what? Well, that's you know, which is in some ways an odd formulation because in some you know when Obama was running, one of the things that he was constantly talking about was that his favorite president was George H.W. Bush. He thought of himself in no small part as a realist. So in some ways, and, and furthermore, it's worth noting that for all of the, the odious nature of the phrase America first, the notion of sovereignty being important is also a Western notion. Um, and so in that sense... Really? Yeah. It's much more fun interrupting him when we're in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, yeah. so you're seriously going to tell me that China, Brazil, Turkey... The idea of sovereignty being important is not 
inherent to those political cultures? Oh no, they like that. But I'm saying that when, when they talk about the role, you know, the importance of Westphalian sovereignty, they are drawing upon a what it's not just unique to those countries, they are drawing upon a Western legal tradition. It's one that's been eroded, you can argue. This is worth it just to watch your reaction. Um, <laughs> Uh, See, usually he can't do that. Yeah, um, you know, to, but but uh, and let me put it this way: it, it's clear that in terms of the basis of the liberal international order, you can argue that sovereignty has been somewhat less important over time. But still, there is a long legal tradition. You know, we're talking about this. So I'm going to call an audible, even though I still don't understand exactly what that is. Um, which reminds me that um, we we. Um, Keith Porter, we got to do a little trashing of the Cubs. And, um, um, if we have anybody in the audience who wants to yell out scores, that would also be fine. Uh, but um, we, we have a ton of people wanting to know to what extent we think the liberal international order is genuinely under threat. And I think, I mean, yes, the liberal international order is massively under threat. I mean, first we have to say that the liberal international order never got quite as liberal or quite as global as its um, defenders and promoters wanted you to think that it was. But the liberal international order was under threat before Donald Trump. Um, the liberal international order was under threat because of the diffusion of global power to a range of actors, many of whom had interests other than promoting the liberal international order. And, and Donald Trump is one piece of that, but not the only and quite possibly not the most important piece of it. So are you, I'm sort of hoping you're gonna be the optimist on the liberal international order here, because that would kind of our usual role. Uh, oh boy. Um, so all right, I'll, I'll be pessimistic, but then I will offer one optimistic take at the end. I'm actually more pessimistic about the liberal international order under President Trump, because you could argue that while, as you say, these were threats that occurred before Trump was president. This is not like suddenly in 2016, the script was flipped. Uh, but that said, in some ways, the strongest aspects of the liberal international order prior to 2016 were the economic ones. With the notion of free trade, you know, free movement of trade, you know, free trade, goods, um, capital, people to some extent, although there it's a little, it's obviously somewhat dodgier. Um, By which you mean we don't actually live up to our own principles. Right. But that said, those were the those were the economic principles that even countries like China and Russia at least paid a fair amount of lip service to, and in some cases, actually did take steps to potentially liberalize. What's interesting is that over the last couple of, you know, is over the last year you've seen two trends both of which cut against that on the economic side. The first is obviously the Trump administration, you know, pulling out of TPP, constantly threatening the pull out of NAFTA. It's getting boring now, frankly, the constant threats to pull out of NAFTA. Um, you know, and basically suggesting a, 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 a new way of thinking about trade that's mercantilist. And then also, by the way, we're having, you know, this, this, uh, this is also going on during the National, uh, the Communist Party Congress in China, in which it seems very clear that China is also essentially giving up on what we would consider liberal economic reforms, um, deciding that it's not necessarily in their interest. Although China's been really, really good at being hypocritical about that in terms of public speeches. Well, gosh, that would make them unique. I know. Now, that said, the one way in which I'm potentially optimistic about the future of the liberal international order is that <coughs> we are now witnessing, and this is going to sound bizarre, we are now witnessing the darkest timeline. You know, one of the problems with defending the liberal international order is always the question of, well, as opposed to what? You know, in other words, people complain about the status quo, thinking there must obviously be a better replacement to the status quo. And we are now seeing attempts to try to come up with a replacement, and they're not working terribly well. Um, and furthermore, they're not terribly popular. One of the fascinating things, there was a Chicago Council poll that came out um, on ad public attitudes about American foreign policy a couple of weeks ago that made it clear that actually Americans are 
leaning or shifting towards the liberal international order um, rather than away for it in odd ways. You know, in other words, everything that Donald Trump says he's for, Americans increasingly are against. Um, which does not mean that, that him being president doesn't have implications, it clearly does. But I'm not sure that his ideas are gonna take root. So uh, that reminds me of an internet meme. Um, and you, as a, as a um, not an employee, but a recipient of, of funding from Jeff Bezos through your column at the Post, I believe you're supposed to sing a show. That's the Amazon tonight. Washington Post. But right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you off the hook because what I think about Americans increasing their support for the liberal international order is, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got? Obviously, the, the, the order wasn't working for everyone. But that said, I, I don't think you, you look at you know, the largest poverty reduction, you know, reduction of poverty in global history, and the most significant reduction of interstate conflict in history and say, ah, eh, those are, so what? I think, I think the better way to, to phrase it is that I think a lot of people took the liberal international order for granted in ways that were not quite understood until we actually start questioning the Actually, I would put it really differently from that, which is one of the flaws of the liberal international order is that the folks who benefited from getting lifted out of poverty and the folks who benefited from conflict not taking place in their societies didn't have as much of a voice yes. as folks who were promised that they would get to live like they were the lords of the manor at Gloria's Early House and instead are living someplace um, with their jobs going away and uncertainty about whether their children are going to enjoy the same kinds of jobs they did. But we should probably get to the questions, but I do want to say that one of the problems of, of Trump's sort of sovereignty first doctrine is that the very issues that, that you have all convened here to talk about are problematic if that winds up being the preeminent doctrine. Um, you know, it's difficult to talk about the question of mass atrocities without actually raising rather some, some rather thorny questions about sovereignty. Similarly, climate change will require, you know, or a just transition, as we, we think about it, will require countries to you know, make serious, costly commitments, which usually can only happen if there are international treaties um, put in place. Uh, as for the, the nuclear question, that's a slightly different one and, and uh, might be worth bringing up the question of, of the president's uh, Twitter feed and whether we are, in fact, three tweets to midnight or not. Well, I was actually going to pause briefly on the president's Twitter feed, um, just because I felt that it would it would disappoint the fans at home if we didn't have anything to say about um, today's events and um, exactly how it is that an American president ought to talk to the families of those killed in our wars. Um, and at some level, I, I've been, and normally our producers at Blogging Heads would do this for us, and so I want to acknowledge them in absentia, but um, I, 
kind of find I have almost nothing left to say on the subject after the photograph of um, the soldier from Florida's widow and six-year-old daughter with his casket. Um, so I really got nothing snarky left to say about that. But interestingly, from the social media point of view, what we're not, what we're still not talking about is what those four Americans were doing in Niger. And the fascinating thing about what the four Americans were doing in Niger is that it really brings together actually all the topics that this conference is talking about. Because, um, and okay, Dan, this is where you, you get to make your, so, so Niger is um, landlocked country in West Africa, one of the central vectors for um, regional extremism and terrorism, but also human trafficking and drug trafficking. And this is where you're supposed to make your short comments. Yellow cake! Don't forget yellow cake. So yes, the, among other things, you know, it's a potential source for uh, uh, yellow cake that can lead to enrichment. If we'd really been thinking, we would have brought a dessert up here and showed it off at yeah. this point. That would have been great. But you know, so so here's Niger, this country that um, most of us would struggle to find on a map. Many of us, even those of us who are serious national security professionals, would struggle to name the capital of. Yeah, should I put him on the spot or not? Yeah, we got it. Dan. <laughs> um, but that where you have um, you have desertification brought about by climate change, you have violent extremism and political conflict, um, and some real challenges of governance, um, and you have um, in the past and quite possibly again in the future the raw material for nuclear weapons, and then you have the American president tweeting, which. You know, this is one of the, I mean, so let me ask you one question, then we should probably get to their question, which is, you know, one of the criticisms of, of, of Trump, or one of the, the things that I think frustrates a lot of people about Trump's social media, is the question, to, to what extent does it crowd out everything else? In other words, as you say, today all we've been talking about is the fact that the President of the United States apparently, you know, was, you know, uh, lacking empathy in terms of talking with this widow uh, based in Florida. He then tweeted out that the, that, that the Democratic representative who reported this was lying, claimed he had evidence uh, that he, he supported himself. And then, of course, at the White House President's Conference, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, you know, it was disgusting, this was even being talked about, and so on and so forth. This dominated the discussion for today in Washington, putting the issue that you just raised to one side, which raises the issue, is this actually something where the social media is a weapon of mass distraction rather than, you know, potentially a useful tool for, you know, concentrating debate, even on an issue where Trump looks like the bad guy. Well, maybe some of the folks in the room who've been studying this will weigh in, and um, there have been actually some really interesting recent studies. The Gaza War is one example that um, I learned about at dinner tonight, so this is a great example of real time and um, virtual time blending together, but I think it's a mistake to posit weapon of mass distraction and weapon of mass destruction as opposites, um, where I think what we're seeing in the current environment, and again, not just from the Trump administration, is that the two work rather well together. That if you view um, social media as an accelerant, like gasoline, which pour on a fire. Um, maybe it is now time, um, folks at home, we are able to look at questions that folks have voted on, so uh, the top vote getter right now, some would say U.S. apathy is preferable to U.S. intervention in global affairs. What defines when the U.S. should intervene? And the brilliant part about
initiative to read the question is Screw that Dan has to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's how you use power in social settings. That's agenda setting power. That's impressive. <laughs> um, so I would say that the answer I would give is, is twofold. First, um, there are many there, there, there are too many situations in the world where, given the preponderance of U.S. military power, the U.S. remains the intervener of last resort. Um, and so, if there, are, if there are situations where, in fact, um, countries are potentially falling apart, and if that country falling apart either leads to potentially the prospect of genocide or also the possibility of violent extremism rising, it's not surprising that we then want the United States intervene, even if it's not going to do the best job, because these are, by definition, difficult circumstances. But mostly, what to be honest, this question fills me with nostalgia. Because 10 years ago, if we were doing Dresdberg, we could have a genuine debate about this question, because this is what we used to talk about. I think that probably in the archives, you and I actually debated this. Right. When should the US intervene? When is the appropriate moment? Um, and we're now in this sort of awkward and uncomfortable situation of saying, well, we agree that probably the U.S. should intervene at some point at various times, as opposed to potentially the current um, uh, administration. And more importantly, that there should be some kind of set of clear guidelines or doctrines for how this should be done, as opposed to sort of an ad hoc you know, nature, which is, again, I believe how the current administration is going to do. Well, I'm um, um, a little more tolerant of ad hocism, or maybe I'm just, I have lower expectations. But the other point I would make is that I don't actually think U.S. not intervening when you are as large an economic and military power as we still are, um, and when you are able to throw weight around as easily um, on social media as is now the case, the U.S. intervening <coughs> is not really so much an option. There's a question of how. And, and I think the conversation about the Rohingya earlier is a great example, the U.S. not intervening is also a choice of intervention. Yes. And where the U.S. doesn't intervene, that is a choice to empower certain actors at the expense of others. You want to read the next question? I will. Um, <coughs> that's the one that I can with. Um, okay, I'll give you this. The second you know, most voted question is, why is it a bad thing to see the end of American exceptionalism? Isn't that a logical consequence of America? I was desperately hoping you were going to read that one. Um, no. I can never win in this. <laughs> no. America First is American exceptionalism taken to its most extreme, which is it's America can do whatever the heck we want, and there are no constraints. If you look at, and I have written recently on this in the National Interest, if you look, I mean, there's a, a great fondness to say, oh, there's no logic, it's just emotion, he's just doing whatever he wants. But there is a very strong, and I think growing, and the Chicago Council survey data actually, if you look below the top lines, bears this out, swath of American opinion and American elite opinion and empowered in um, elected officials' opinion, sort of which takes a sovereigntist view to the US role in world affairs and says, the only thing that trammels us is the Constitution and maybe the Ten Commandments, depending on who you're talking to. But if it ain't in the Constitution, and it ain't in the Ten Commandments, and it's in our interest, we can do it. And that actually, um, to Dan's earlier point, should make you somewhat nostalgic for the tropes, even if they were tropes and cliches and honored in the breach as much as the reality of the liberal international order where we did think there were some limits and we did seek to build systems that limited us as well as others. Heather, you get the next question. Great. Um, isn't 
the lesson of Rwanda dance, as she brought up Rwanda, that we you can do nothing and apologize later? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> to the extent that you know, the lesson of Rwanda is that because just because you've made a previous policy mistake, I would argue, doesn't therefore mean that you should circumscribe further action. Um, so again, the reason that we don't do anything in Rwanda was because of what had happened in Somalia. And that has been, you know, the, the politics of this were very clear. It made it clear that the Clinton administration was way too gun-shy. Um, and I, I think the lesson, unfortunately, is that at least in the United States, we careen wildly, wildly from one mistake to the other, which is the mistake of intervention without thinking to non-intervention without thinking. Um, because these, you know, because what we are primarily concerned about is political optics. Um, so yeah, well that question, you know, the fact that the, the President Clinton went on his apology tour and apologized for not intervening certainly was uh, something that he could do. But I would argue that the, the, the lesson to draw is that we will not necessarily ever have a happy equilibrium of the, the optimal way of intervening. And we tend to react, we, over, we react in an extreme manner to past mistakes. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the comprehensive indictment of American foreign policy. Um, all right, so now I'm going to read another one, and I'm going to go a little bit out of order because I know everyone is on the edge of your chairs waiting for this one. Um, as many of our loyal followers will know, uh, Dan has been in the news lately in a story involving garbage. Uh, and so, Dan, what everybody wants to know is, when a Trump administration official tells the New York Times Magazine that your edited volume belongs in the garbage, what does that do to sales? <laughs> so to put this in context, there's a great uh, New York Times uh, Magazine story that I believe will be coming out this Sunday in print on uh, Rex Tillerson's tenure at the State Department. Uh, there is a priceless anecdote contained within that story in which uh, the reporter writing it was in uh, Brian Hook's office Brian Hook being the director of policy planning, uh, the reporter noticed that a book of mine uh, called Avoiding Trivia, uh, <laughs> which is an edited volume that I did from Brookings about 10 years ago about uh, policy and strategic planning, um, was on the desk. And so the reporter brought it up, at which point R.C. Hammond, who was the spokesperson for Rex Tillerson, who was apparently the minder for the interview, said literally, you mean that guy from the thing with the post? And then like took the book and said, it's going in the trash can. And Brian Hook, you know, said, no, 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 this, he wrote this well before Rex Tillerson was Secretary of State. I need this book. He was like, trash can! And then Hook flocked him. And then it ends with the priceless sentence, I now know why Hook had the bottle of gin on his desk. Um, the answer is... If you don't know, by the way, Dresner's book can be purchased packaged with a bottle of gin. Brookings <laughs> <laughs> um, Institution Press, if anyone from you is watching this, you want a special box set of Bombay Sapphire Gin <laughs> with the copy of Avoiding Trivia. That is going to be a collector's edition. <laughs> to answer your question about what happened to sales, this was uh, not like the most popular book. The sales rank on Amazon prior to this whole kerfuffle, I checked yesterday morning, was approximately 1,990,000. Uh, the book then rocketed up to within the top like 80,000 and more importantly Amazon is sold now out of stock. So R.C. Hammond, all I can beg you, please take the, my latest book, The Ideas Industry, <laughs> Partisans and Plutocrats are Transforming the Marketplace of Ideas, and try to throw that book in the trash and have a reporter report. Thank you, R.C.
<laughs> My turn to ask a question. Um, okay. Does Trump's stance of not caring about human rights actually put him in a position of leverage and power to have impact on human rights issues? I guess in the notion that if he doesn't care, if he then decides he wants to step in on something, think, for example, chemical weapons in Syria, maybe that would actually matter. So I'm going to take advantage of this one to answer another question, which is up here um, about sort of about realist arguments about... You're pursuing a Heather first strategy, and don't think I don't notice this. Damn right. <laughs> so there is this wonderful habit that we have of teaching international relations as if everything can be very carefully planned out and strategized for maximum advantage. And it is totally true that a hypothetical president could hypothetically very carefully develop and calibrate a strategy where she or he said in public, I don't care about human rights, and then sort of used that or even empowered some of his or her cabinet officials to go in and say, well, you know, since the president has said over and over he doesn't care about human rights, it'll be much more devastating when we totally cut you guys off because of what you just did to the Rohingya or the whomever. Um, or to go around the world and say, well, you know, you know we're not like those normal moralistic Americans. You know, but like this one is really too big to let pass. So absolutely a president who was very attuned to a smart negotiating strategy and had a really, what's the famous quote from early in the administration, a well-oiled machine? Running so smoothly. Running yeah. so smoothly? Yeah, yes, there's all kinds of things you can, one can do in negotiations, good cop, bad cop. But um, you know these are uh, these are the same people who had their travel ban thrown out for the third time this week because they can't stop their leader from tweeting about what the actual purpose of the travel ban is. And what do you know? It turns out that judges read Twitter. We've had a really good sort of multiple stage experiment now to prove that judges read Twitter. So um, no. There, it does not put Donald Trump in a position of leverage and power to have impact on human rights issues. No, Donald Trump has no credibility and no leverage on human rights issues, except insofar as there are any human rights issues that can be affected by whether or not you build a Trump property there. All right, it's your turn for the question. Last one. Uh, Last is, one. Okay, and this is a good one. Um, are we, so are we, well, I'm going to add a question. Is information warfare a weapon of mass disruption, and are we practitioners of information warfare? Yeah. Oh, was I not supposed to say that? Oh, we weren't going to say that out loud. <laughs> uh, uh, I think without question that, so here's my take on this. So, so there is no denying that, that we are seeing, you know, what's been exposed is the ways in which the sort of new information environment we operate in potentially creates vulnerabilities that other states can try to exploit to try to manipulate public opinion. That said, I think the question that we always have to ask is not so much did other countries try to influence you know, public opinion in the United States or in France or in Germany or in other countries. The answer is of course they did, and that is not a new thing. That's been happening since the invention of propaganda. E.H. Carr was talking about this back during the interwar period. So that is hardly a novel phenomenon. The question is, why did it seem to work as well this time around, as opposed to previous go-arounds? Why was it that you know these kinds of sort of fake news or myth-making or you know other sort of story, you know, misinformation, why did it seem to operate so well in the current environment in a way that it has not before? 
So I think the interesting thing is not so much information warfare, it's that the operating environment, the sort of conditions on the ground have changed such where we're operating with such a high degree of distrust of authority that it allows people to potentially plant these kinds of stories and actually have them grow in a way that I don't think they could have grown 30 years ago. Well, at the risk of getting cut off by our organizers, I'm going to take that a little more broadly and say that I think it's really worth, as much as we in the U.S. are all mesmerized by the question, or many of us are mesmerized by the question of Russia and our elections, it's really worth opening our lens considerably more broadly. And I'm old enough that I worked at the State Department when there was an individual who had a full-time job at the State Department to combat Soviet propaganda that the U.S. Um, sold babies for parts in Latin America. That was a full-time job for a person. And by the way, it was a failure. I mean, because once that myth was spread, you could never unspread it. So this is something that pre-existed social media. As I mentioned earlier, I think in many ways the Gaza war is, is a real watershed where you see both sides very deliberately employing a social media strategy both directly against each other, but more importantly, to, to build allies and new relationships outside the zone of conflict in a way that frankly changed not just the outcome of that conflict, but how large swaths of the global population view the Israeli-Palestinian issue forever. So information warfare is a weapon. It's not new, as Dan says, and I think you could um, probably go back to Greco-Roman times. Um, or other times, if I were more literate in other ancient cultures, to see its use. But the again, the accelerant question and the destructiveness question, where you have the ability to both reach large numbers of people and large numbers of people's ability to be empowered in ways that uh, the peasants weren't so empowered back in the day. Um, but we know that we are not instruments of information warfare because we know our viewers are awesomely checking out multiple sources, fact-checking everything we say. Indeed, you're sending us critical questions even as we speak. So we know that you guys are part of the solution and not part of the problem. And thank you for sharing us with this live audience tonight. Thank you so much. And you know, we're happy to have you. Goodbye, live audience. Hope you enjoyed it. And thank you to the audience here for being such patient and disappointing because they're used to a full hour of dress um, and we asked them to do a condensed version tonight. Thank you for all of you that participated in Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.